Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This week is Pasha's Bahalaischa, and we're going to continue learning the halachis of eating meat after dairy, basar b'chalav, basar after chalav, actually. And this is the second part, and we'll have, a, I believe, another part to this. So the Gemara says that after eating meat, one can't eat dairy, can't eat milchigs, until the next suda. That's actually the, the language the Gemara uses. You have to separate it. It has to be mesuda la suda, two different sudas. So the Rishonim disagree what the definition of the next suda is. Now, we're very familiar with the opinion of the Rambam, who explains that it refers to the standard time between the morning and evening suda, the meal in the morning and the meal in the afternoon, which would be at least six hours. So therefore, according to his understanding, you are always required to wait six hours after eating meat before eating dairy. Other Rishayinim explain that it just means any amount of time between meals, and the main thing being that one should bench, say, Berches in between the meals. The Mechaber and Shulchan Aruch quotes the Rambam's opinion and says you have to wait six hours after eating meat. The Ramah says that some people only wait one hour between meat and milk. Yet, the Ramah ends by saying that the correct thing to do is to wait six hours. That's a, a very small minority of people. Uh, some, peop- some of the Dutch people have the custom to actually only wait one hour, but there are certain larger communities, notably the Yakasha community, that only wait three hours, and that opinion of three hours is basically this same approach of the Ramah, which is not like the Mechaber, it doesn't require six hours, it really only requires one hour, so they had a minute to wait three hours. It's the same idea. But the majority of Kali Yisrael goes with the opinion of the Mechaber, and they wait six hours after eating meat before eating milk. And according to all opinions, you are obligated to bench before eating milk or cheese. So even, let's say, we wait six hours, right? person waited six hours, but they're still in the middle of one meal. So when would that happen? For example, they washed per morning and they ate some meat and they continued to eat different things throughout the day and more bread. And then six hours passed and now they want to eat some dairy. They would need to bench first before eating dairy. We said the same thing applies the other way around. When you eat dairy and then you want to eat flesh, you want to eat meat, you need to bench in between as well. So the concept always applies that between meat and dairy, dairy and meat, even if you wait the required amount of time, you also are required to say Birchas HaMazen. Now, as you can deduce from this, the calculation of six hours begins from when you finish eating meat. So although you are still in the middle of a fleshig suit, in the middle of a meat meal and you haven't benched yet, so let's say Shabbos day meal, you ate the last meat item, chalent or deli or whatever it is, and then your meal stretched on for quite a bit before you got to benching. You had desserts and then you schmoozed and all that. You don't have to wait till you bench to start counting the six hours. You can count the six hours from when you finish eating meat. Now, not everybody agrees to this. There are some places that hold you do have to wait you have to start counting only after you bench, but that's not the majority of Paiskim. That's also certainly not the prevalent minute. The minute is to be lenient and start counting from when you finish eating meat. Now, you may, you may have heard and be familiar with that some people say that six hours isn't exactly six, and really five and a half is sufficient. 
when I went to Lakewood Yeshiva, BMG, they serve a fleshig lunch, and the supper is generally dairy, but there's only five and a half hours at most between the lunch and the supper, because lunch is served at about 1.45, finishes at about 2.15, and supper is served at 7.45, so there's only, um, you know, there's less than six hours in between them. This the reason why they can do this is Rev. Aaron Cutler, that's how, came to the conclusion that six hours was not meant to be an exact number. And certainly when you consider the fact that they didn't possess exact methods to measure time in the, the time of the Gemara, and it just meant close to six hours, of which five and a half hours is sufficient, and Lakewood Yeshiva still practices this today. This is a lively discussion among the contemporary Paiskim, and Paiskim are on both sides of the fence. But many people have a clear minhag to wait full six hours, not a minute less. And that's definitely, if that is your minhag, that is what you should do. You should wait a full six hours. And even those who don't have a minhag or are lenient with this, Rabbi Yashiv Zatzal said that it should only be applied when the situation really requires it. Like the yeshiva, that the sadarim could not be changed around. It was very difficult to change them. They had no choice but to have the meals in that way. Or if some other kind of situation comes up where you would need to eat milk or dairy after five and a half hours, but otherwise one should not rely on that and they should wait a full six hours. Now, why do you have to wait six hours? Where does that come from? So there are two reasons given by the Paiskim. Rashi and others explain because the meat leaves a residue in the mouth and you know in your digestive system and it causes people to have a meat taste. And if, were they, if they were to eat milk or cheese within that period, it would feel like they were eating basar and chalav together. It would feel like they eating meat and milk together, and Chazal didn't want that. So therefore, they made a cool-down period of six hours, and by then, all traces have vanished. That's the one explanation why you have to wait six hours. The Rambam explains that what we're concerned about is that some pieces of meat might become stuck in the teeth. And therefore, it will be like eating milk and meat together. Now, we don't rely on brushing or flossing to take care of this problem. So they said, if it's a problem, you can't, you know, have individual solutions for it. And after six hours, at that point, whatever is in your mouth is sufficiently not relevant. We don't care. And at that point, it wouldn't be a problem. And that's why you can eat milk after six hours. So according to the Ramah, it's because of stuff stuck in your teeth. And because of, according to Rashi, it's because there's still, it's in your system. The meat is still in your system. When we consider these two reasons, you can see that there are numerous differences that one reason would apply and the other wouldn't. For example, what if someone just drinks chicken soup and doesn't chew a solid at all? According to the Rambam, nothing will get stuck in your teeth. You didn't chew anything. But you do have the taste in your mouth, so you would have Rashi's reason. What about the other way around? What if you bite off some meat or chew some meat for a small child, but you don't actually eat it, you don't swallow it? According to the Ramam, there would be a problem because it could get stuck in the teeth. But according to the other opinion, there wouldn't be an issue because you haven't eaten it at all. So you have all these differences, and we, of course, are machmer like all opinions. So if either opinion is applicable, we wait six hours. If you drink chicken soup, even though you didn't chew, chew, you have to wait six hours. If you chewed meat, even though you didn't swallow it, you have to wait six hours. So where is the only situation where both reasons don't apply. So that would be if you, let's say, you put a piece of meat or chicken into your mouth and you immediately removed it, right? Let's say you, you tasted something and you didn't like it and you spit it out. Or you put something in your mouth and you realize, oh my goodness, I did not have my coffee yet. And you spit it right out. 
So in that situation, you don't really have either reason. You haven't really chewed it, and you haven't really eaten it, and you didn't mean to eat it, which is also an important point. You didn't mean to eat it. Therefore, when you do that, you don't have to wait six hours, but you should, you know, eat and drink something, like always, wash out your mouth, and then you can eat berry. This actually just happened to my daughter. She put something in her mouth. She didn't like it. She spit it out, and then she wanted to eat milk, so you were allowed to because you didn't intend to eat it. You didn't chew it. You didn't swallow it, and then you don't, aren't, aren't obligated to wait six hours. Parashas Behalaychah. I titled this how to criticize effectively and sensitively lessons from Hashem. The parasha has an astounding variety of events, and many of them are very pivotal in the story of Kali Yisrael's journey through the Midbar. The parasha begins with the process of inducting the Levium into the service of Hashem and replacing the Bukharis. The Bukharis at this point officially were relieved of their job or their zuchus to serve Hashem in the Beit HaMikdash or the Mishkan. And this was a very powerful event as the Bukhar had been the representatives of all people in Avaida from the beginning of creation and now were being rejected with a finality because of the Chet Egel, and the Levim were taking their place. The next event was a group of people who were not able to bring the carbon Pesach on Pesach because they had been busy either with Yosef HaTzadik's bones or with Nadav and Aviv's bodies, and they demanded to have the opportunity to bring the carbon just like everybody else. And this was a request of great Kedusha, the Kedusha Hashem. And as a result, the parasha of Pesach Sheni was given to Moshe Rabbeinu, and they were given the second, they were afforded an opportunity to serve Hashem. They were given a second chance. Then Klal Yisrael leaves the Midbar Sinai, where they had been for almost a year, and this was a very significant move, because it represented Klal Yisrael fulfilling the first part of Hashem's promise when taking them out of Mitzrayim. Tavdun es Hashem you'll serve Hashem on this mountain. That was accepting the Torah. And then they were now proceeding to the fulfillment of the next promise, to conquer Eretz Yisrael. They were headed directly to enter Eretz Yisrael, and if not for the Miraglim sin of next week's parasha, they would have. However, the fashion which they left Midbar Sinai was held against them, because they were like a tinik haberech, Base has safer, they were happy to leave, like a child leaves school, runs out of school, because Har Sinai Sinai, it represented tremendous responsibility and obligation. And apparently there was some iota of a feeling weighed down by this. And this led to, to the next event. The next event recorded is that Kleinstraw wasn't happy. Some simply complained about a number of things, which the Pasik doesn't even explicitly list. It just says they complained. And those people who complained were immediately punished, immediately punished by a fire which burned them. Then another group began to complain, and there it says they were unhappy with the mun, and they didn't like it, and they wanted meat. And at this point, an unusual thing happens. Maisha Rabbeinu tells Hashem he simply can't lead Klai Yisrael anymore. It's too much for him. He's not capable of doing it alone. So to this, Hashem commands him to appoint another 70 elders who will assist him, and they will share in his nevuah. The 70 elders are appointed, and Hashem's presence comes to rest upon Moshe, and it's shared among all 70 elders. They say the nevuah as well, but then there are two more, Eldad and Medad, 72 in total, who are not part of the original 70, and they are included in the nevuah as well. 
Then Hashem produces the slav, which was a fatty pigeon, which filled the demand of Klai Yisrael to eat meat, but turned out to be a punishment when everyone who ate it fell sick and eventually died. Lastly, as a result of Eldad and Midad being chosen to become Nevi'im, Aaron and Miriam become aware that Moshe Rabbeinu had separated from his wife, Tipaira, already starting from Kabbalah And they disagreed with this decision, thinking that Moshe had made this decision on his own, and they felt that he was no different than them. They didn't separate from their wives or husbands, and he should not have separated from Tipaira. This is considered Lashon Har. And Hashem appeared to them, he admonished them, and then punished Miriam alone with Tzaraf. Moshe damned for her recovery, but she had to suffer for seven days. But the whole of Klal Yisrael waited for her to recover before continuing on the journey. This event is so important, we are required to remember it every day. Zechor Asher Asala Miriam, remember what Hashem did to Miriam. There is so much to talk about the sequence of events and what it represents in Klal Yisrael's growth as a nation. But I want to focus just on one point which we see in sharp contrast in the Pasha. Kali Yisrael sins twice in this Pasha, one by complaining and one by requesting meat. Both times, they are punished swiftly, sharply. They are burned or they die eating the slav. Now you contrast that with the sin that Aharon and Miriam commit in the end of the Pasha. Hashem first appears to them. He explains clearly what was done wrong and then punishes Miriam temporarily with Tzaraz, and during which time she is accorded the greatest respect by Klai Yisrael, as everything grinds to a halt, waiting for her recovery. Why was it that Klai Yisrael was punished so decisively, without seeming any explanation, with such a finality, whereas Miriam and Aaron were seemingly treated with kidlock? And it's true, Miriam and Aaron were the greatest tzaddikim, but the rule is actually the other way around. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is medaktek im tzaddikim kechot hasa'ara. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is much more stringent than exacting with tzaddikim, even over an infringement, the width of a hair. So let's examine what, what happens here. When Hashem appears himself to admonish, to criticize Aaron and Miriam, he uses a very interesting choice of words. Let's examine the language of the Musar. It says, Vayoymer, Hashem said, Shimu na dvarai. Listen to my words. Even if you are Nevi'im and you do get prophecy from Hashem, you only see a vision, you can only see it in a dream at night. Now, the word, it's prefaced with Shimu Na Devarai. Na, the word Na, Shimu Na. What does the word Na mean? Shimu, listen, Na. Sarash explains, Na means, E Na El Eloshem Bakasha. No, is a word that means please, and more than that, it's not just a regular please. It connotes a very respectful request. Please listen to what I have to say. Hashem is talking to Aaron and Miriam. He's about to criticize them, and he says, please listen. Why does Hashem have to request them to listen? So the sister Chacham explains that even though Hashem was angry at them, as the Pasuk says soon, Nevertheless, Hashem spoke to them with respect and calmly because if he would have addressed them in anger, they wouldn't have been able to listen. And from here, he writes, we can deduce a Kavuchheimer for a simple mortal like us. We should always speak with respect and calm. The source for this is the Mizrahi and ultimately the Sifri. Now, this is so amazing, it's very hard to wrap our heads around it. Hashem asks them please listen to me, because if Hashem would yell at them, they wouldn't listen, Aaron and Miriam. 
even Aaron and Miriam have to be addressed respectfully by Hashem? In the course of the criticism, Hashem explains the difference between their level of nevuah and Moshe's level of prophecy, and that's what required him to separate from his wife. Now, Hashem didn't have to explain all this because simply the fact alone that Hashem had commanded him to separate was already enough to derail their argument. He, was doing, he wasn't doing it on his own. He was commanded. But that wasn't what Hashem was telling them. Hashem was leading up to the last line. How could you have not been afraid to speak about my servant, Moshe? This is a very important approach in criticism. If you tell a person what their mistake was, so they can say, oh, I didn't know. If you tell a person they wronged you, they can say, I didn't mean it, or I didn't mean for you to take it that way. And the criticism won't achieve much other than to communicate that you were hurt, which is important, or that someone else was hurt. But Hashem wants the criticism to give direction, how to improve. Hashem targets the core issue which brought on the mistake, the lack of yira, or for Moshe's tremendous stature. Now, of course, we don't relate or understand what is going on here, and certainly no one had greater respect and understanding in Moshe's level than Aaron and Miriam, the two Nevi'im directly under him. So nevertheless, as much as we don't understand what the chet here was, Hashem is giving Musr. And from the style of the Musr, we can learn how to criticize so that it actually has a point it actually gives the person who is being criticized the opportunity to grow from that. So after Hashem details what they have done wrong, the Pasuk says, af Hashem bam The anger of Hashem was incited in them, and he left. Rashi explains, this teaches us that if Hashem didn't get visibly angry at them, I'm sorry, that Hashem didn't get visibly angry at them through the punishment until he had voiced his complaint against them. And likewise, Rashi says, a human shouldn't get angry at his friend until he tells him what the problem is. So here we have a fascinating contrast in front of us. On one hand, Hashem meets out judgment without explanation or seeming mercy at the beginning of the parasha. He punishes Klal Yisrael. They complain. They die by fire. They complain about the man. They die by eating slav. And then on the other hand, Hashem treats Aaron and Miriam almost like equals and demonstrates us the proper way to criticize, first by addressing respectfully and calmly and not actively becoming angry until everything is out in the open and been discussed, and by teaching them exactly where they need to improve, and finally, passing judgment in a limited and merciful manner. So what's the difference here? The rule is that one part of the Torah reveals the truth about another. If the proper method of Musr is being taught in the end of the Parsha, then that method is what's always employed. So how could that be true in the other judgments in the Parsha? According to what a person is, according to their level of understanding and closeness to Hashem, that determines how they will be communicated with. Aaron and Miriam had a level of prophecy just under Moshe Rabbeinu. What they considered correct or incorrect was the highest level of Das Torah possible. They talked directly to Hashem. They learned Torah directly from Moshe, and they understood Torah, and what was right and what was wrong on a level just under Moshe. If they made a mistake in judgment, it could only be corrected directly by Hashem. So Hashem addresses them and demonstrates to us the single possible way for a criticism to be heard. There's only one way. It doesn't make a difference who is addressing and who is being addressed. 
It has to be with the greatest of true and demonstrated respect. Hashem himself is telling Aaron and Miriam, no, please listen. Can we even begin to comprehend the level of respect that that communicates? If we want to give over a criticism, the only way it will be heard, no matter how great the listener is, is if it has that measure of respect. Now, people who are of a much lower level than Aharon and Miriam, and they know themselves that the choices they make aren't rooted in Tyra and are likely influenced by selfish desires or other character flaws, don't have to be addressed directly by Hashem to correct their mistakes. Hashem sends his many messengers to communicate a person's failings to them. But we can be assured that the same way Hashem saw to it that the criticism of Aaron and Miriam was delivered in the most respectful and calm way possible so that they could learn and listen, so too Hashem sees to it that every person gets the message in a way that they can understand. And it's only if it's then ignored is the next step a harsher form of reproach. The Sephardist says that Vayichar Af Hashem, Hashem got angry at Aaron and Miriam, was because they didn't immediately say, Chatasi, we have sinned. He says, David HaMelech, when Nasan Hanavi approached him to reprimand him about the sin of Bathsheba, he immediately said, as soon as Nasan finished speaking, Chatasi Lashem. As soon as he said that, Nasan Hanavi replied to him in the name of Hashem, Gam Hashem Heber Hashem has removed your sin. Because that's what Hashem expects. That when you get the Musa, when you get the information, when the criticism is delivered properly, then it's our job to accept it. And the greater the person, the clearer the message, the greater the expectation that the Musa will be acted on immediately. And that is what is meant, that by HaKadosh Baruch Hu medakdek im tzadikim t'chut ha-sa'ara, even a fraction of a second, if it takes too long, they, 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 they pause that nanosecond before they said Khatasi and it was Vichar Hashem. That's HaKadosh Baruch Hu Medaktik in Tzadikim. And the rest of Klai Yisrael in this week's parasha, they got the message too, but it was communicated in various other ways. And Rashi speaks it out earlier in the parasha that they, they, were, they were let known that they did the wrong thing. And they also, they didn't take it to heart and they didn't change and they chose to ignore the message. And that's when the punishment came. So what a powerful lesson this is for us. A, number one, to make sure that we get the message, however Hashem communicates it to us. And B, if we have to criticize and admonish a child, a sibling, a friend, or an employee, how much respect and care and sensitivity needs to be employed if we want to have any hope that it be listened to. Have a good night and a good Shabbos.